So we have two readings. Our first one is from Deuteronomy, and uh, chapter 5, verses 12 to 15. That's on page 184 in the Red Bibles in your places. Deuteronomy, chapter 5, verses uh, 12 to 15. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do, you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns." so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. And the second reading is from Mark, chapter 6, verses 30 to 44. And that's on page 1009 in your Bibles. Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 44. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat... He said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognised them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them, but because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. And then Jesus told them to make all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They ate, they all ate, and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was five thousand.
Good to know that degree in electrical and electronic engineering has not been wasted on me. The on button has been found. Um, thanks, Andrew, for reading that. Keep, keep Mark open. We'll come back to that in just a little while. If I was to ask, um, you can just think about this yourselves for a moment. When does it feel like uh, your work sort of finished and rest begins? I wonder if there's a point in the week when that happens. I'm looking around seeing farmers and things. Maybe there isn't a point in the week like that. Maybe, maybe it's when you leave the office on a Friday or at home when you, you switch the computer off um, for the last time in the week. Uh, maybe, maybe if you're a mum with young children, maybe it's sort of the last time in the week when you have to lay out the uniforms and make the, the packed lunch. And that's it, kind of, you've got through another week. Because I work for a church... Uh, Sunday evening feels like the end of my working week. So tonight, about nine o'clock, when I'm heading home, I've kind of got a phrase I say to myself on Sunday evenings. Uh, As I head out the door at nine o'clock, I say, the rest of the weekend belongs to me. It's all mine. Those three hours, just for me. But of course, that's not quite true, is it? Because we've been thinking about this idea of stewardship, and in that sense, nothing, nothing really belongs to us, not in an independent way. No, the Bible gives a slightly different anthropology because it says we're stewards. Everything that exists and everything that we have comes as a gift from God for which we are responsible and accountable. And you think, well, even our time and rest... Even our, our time and our rest, it, does that belong to God? Well, you, you remember, if you know the Bible at all, back in Genesis, how God begins his creation. He begins with the creation of a working week and a day of rest, and he puts people into that week. We didn't invent work and rest. They come from God. His ideas, they belong to him. Time and rest belong to God as well. So that first reading from Deuteronomy Where in verse 12 it says this, Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. On it you shall not do any work. I think in our busy culture we hear that and want to push back against it. And you think, well, let's not be legalistic. We don't want a kind of Puritan rules curtailing our freedom. But at that point you realize the Bible kind of comes at us from left field because it says, look, God's not designing this to curtail your freedom. It's in order to protect it. You read on in that passage from Deuteronomy in verse 15. Moses writes this, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord our God commanded you to observe the Sabbath. Remember you were slaves, so keep the Sabbath. How about that? Those of you engrafted, maybe joining us in this part of the service, uh, for the first time, this hour on a Sunday, this imposition on your free time. Uh, the Bible's saying, look, maybe one of the things that ensures you find freedom in life. That's a weird thought, isn't it? This hour on the Sunday, uh, for the rest of us as well, maybe one of the things that ensures you actually find and retain freedom in life. You read the Bible and you see it keeps making a play for our time all the time. So in that second reading, we'll come back to it in a bit. In Mark's gospel, Jesus says to his disciples, come away with me and get some rest. 
And I think all of us, we, we know uh, time's important. Many of us feel super busy. Um, and we're not the only ones. I read an article during the week by a guy called Oliver Berkman. Let me, let me read some of what he, he says. He's writing, he was writing on the BBC and he says, Few facts about modern life seem more indisputable than how busy everyone seems to be. Across the West, large numbers tell researchers they're overburdened with work at the expense of time with family and friends. And then he goes on to say this, which I thought was, uh, was interesting. He says, historically, historically, the ultimate symbol of wealth, achievement, and social superiority was the freedom not to work. But now, it's busyness. You ask me, am I busy? And I tell you, yes, of course I'm busy because I'm an important person. And you see what he's getting at. He, he's saying we use our activity to, to reassure ourselves we're significant. Uh, when I was at school a long time ago, back in the 1980s, we had schools back then, for those of you who are much younger, but we used to, I, used to, I can't remember the exact subjects, but I'm sure we used to see and bits of television programs, and we, we'd talk about things about the future. Do you remember a program, Tomorrow's World? That used to be on the TV back then. It's all oh, the exciting things are going to happen in the future. And the phrase that would come out uh, from time to time was, in the future, because of technology, we'd all have a lot more leisure time. And I remember used to think, oh, how's that going to work? We won't have to, we won't have to work because we'll have all this technology. We'll just be sitting around doing things. And we're living in the future now. This is the future, by the way. Um, many of you might not know that. This is the future. It doesn't feel like that, does it? It doesn't feel, for many of us, like life's just filled with leisure time. And you maybe know why some of that is technology designed to give freedom to work anywhere, anytime. You can just work anywhere, anytime. It's actually tempting us more and more to work everywhere, all the time. So if I was to ask... Put your hands up, uh, hands up anyone who, who didn't feel tempted to check work emails this summer while they were on holiday. So anyone, well done. Not just you didn't check it, you didn't even feel tempted to check your work emails. Well done, uh, about seven or eight of you. Um, yeah, I did, I have to say. And it doesn't stop at work, this idea of business, this business mindset. One author says, we now live, and I love this phrase, we now live in an infinite world. And you know what he's getting at? Um, you know what he means? A thousand emails to respond to. There's different kinds of people, aren't there? There's the people who keep their email inbox uh, under control and down. And I was talking to a friend the other week who says he has 5,000 emails in his inbox. Three and a half thousand of them are unread. I mean, it's terrifying, isn't it? Uh, the red number there, unread emails, 1,000 emails to respond to, 1,000 TV shows that you could stream online, uh, 1,000 pictures on Instagram to, to browse through. Uh, then there's the after-school clubs, uh, the music lessons, the church stuff, all of that to go through. And there's a feeling we can and should have it all. But it's mathematically impossible. We live in an infinite world, but we're not infinite and the research is saying is actually affecting our work performance. Our work performance trails off, and it's affecting us in other ways. People are noticing it's reducing people's compassion. Over busy people aren't great. 
too busy at work, you'll be miserable at home. Too busy gaming or online all night, and you'll be absolutely useless in work the next day and miserable to work with. Uh, Or you'll become the narky person on Twitter. Even Taylor Swift is concerned about, uh, worried about her compassion. Say it on the street, it's a knockout. Say it in a tweet, it's a cop-out. I like that little line. You need to calm down, you're being too loud. Just people online, hassling, miserable all the time, having a go at each other. And so if Taylor Swift is worried about it, I mean, we should consider it at some point, shouldn't we? (laughs) And you think, okay, with all this busyness, what does it mean to be a steward of the time that God's given? Look, here's what we think about. Here's just three things as we, as we go through this this morning. How to check for the wrong kind of busy. The key to controlling busyness. And some practical help. Here's the first idea to have in mind. Look, slaves... Slaves are always busy, but never have enough time. Why would we say that? Look, that rescue from Egypt you come across in the Old Testament... God rescuing his people from slavery and giving them that pattern of work and rest that echoes creation. Part of the reason seems to be something like this. Look, pause, pause for your work. And pause from your work to remember you used to be slaves, but not any longer. I asked Jack, who's my youngest, over breakfast during the week. Um, I, I asked him, like, who... Who works all the time and never gets any rest? And he's only seven, but he got it. He says, that's a slave, isn't it? Their work's never finished. And their taskmaster has no compassion for them. Now, what's strange about the command God's giving his people in the Old Testament is they're not slaves anymore. And you think, so why the need for the command? Well, I guess in part is because God knows there's a deeper problem for all of us. We are people who've been made to have our lives filled with things, filled with the knowledge of a God who is infinite. But because we turn away from him, well, we try and fill it with other things. And one of the ways is busyness. So the Bible would say to us, look, if, you, if you're someone who struggles to give boundaries to your work or to other activities, whether it's online stuff or everything, if it always seems to be spilling over, if you're busy all the time, if you're always busy, never seem to have enough time, it's worth asking, who are you serving? Are you living like a slave? I've been trying to think about some of the causes, causes of busyness in, in my life and just more broadly for all of us to, to think about. And look, as we say this, if I say these, look, I keep in mind, some of us are busy because we're trying to pay the bills. We've had to get jobs that are busy because we've got all sorts of demands on us and we're doing it. Some of you are new parents. We've heard about a couple of babies that have been born. You know, it's busy. (laughs) If you get a new baby, life just gets busy very quickly in all sorts of ways. Going to bed at a reasonable time doesn't make any difference because you're going to be up two or three times during the night. Life is is busy with things like that. There's kind of busyness we get. There's some jobs... Uh, that many of us have. Some are doctors, some are farmers, and there's all sorts of different jobs like that where there's times you are just crazy busy. You can't do anything about it. And we know there's times where life will just be busy, or maybe you've started a new company, 
started a new business in some way, and you know for the first few years, it is going to be super busy. That's just the way it is. You've got to work all sorts of hours. But accepting those, look, here's some other reasons to consider why we might be busy. And the first one I want to mention is this one of greed. I just want more. I want more money. I want more success. So we do more work, more experiences, more fun. So we pack all of our spare time in. Because, it's, because those things are temporary, they don't last, and yet they're sort of tantalizingly near. I've just got to do an extra half hour. I'm just going to take on one more thing. And we keep going back for more. I'm over busy because I'm greedy. I just want more stuff. Another reason, I think, is anxiety. Harold Abrahams, if you've ever heard of him, he was the guy who won the 100 meters gold in the 1924 Paris Olympics. He's depicted in the film uh, Chariots of Fire that's about Eric Liddell, but Harold Abrahams is in that, and there's a line where he talks about his running, and he says this, 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. But will I? If it in any way is an accurate depiction of how he felt, it's a very honest one, isn't it? What are you doing in your running, in your race? Ten lonely seconds. Not to try and win a race, but to justify my existence. But will I? It's the question, am I good enough? And what do I do if I feel I'm not? Well, get busy. Work harder. Parents who you know they love you, but you you feel they just seem to love you a bit more when you're a success. So you're always active with schoolwork or even beyond school and university with career. And when you're not doing it, you're active worrying about it. Or if I think I'm not a great mom or a wife and I'm desperate to appear okay, I'll always be busy at home. Always tidying up. I'll never be able to just sit down and relax. I'm often busy because I'm anxious, wanting to prove myself. I've done enough. I'm okay. And look, here's the third thing. Distraction. If there's difficult things in life, maybe you're in a season of life when married life is just tough. Or perhaps it's something different. Maybe it's loneliness. Or some other disappointment in life. And they're just painful things to think about. So if I keep myself busy, I can distract myself from those. There's gaps in life. And we fill it with busyness, but we don't have the resources, so we never fill them up. It's part of what the Bible means when it says that we're slaves to sin. We're we're busy in wrong ways. Slaves are always busy, but they never have enough time. And the Bible would say, look, check yourself. If you're someone who's super busy, there can be good reasons for busyness, but it's worth checking. Who are you serving? Why are you so busy? And if you begin to think, look, how, how do you control busyness? I think God would say to us, you can't. You can't by yourself. It will always overwhelm you stuff to do and activity. It will always begin to creep in and take over. You can't control it by yourself. No, what you need to do is surrender to a compassionate Savior 
who himself has infinite resources. Come back with me to Mark's gospel. This this reading about the feeding of the 5,000. In the Old Testament, God's people knew that rescue from Egypt, that rescue from slavery was always pointing forwards to to a bigger rescue to come, a, a rescue from sin. In the Old Testament story, God took his people. He, he took them through a wilderness. He, he taught them and he, he fed them on the way. And here in Mark, Jesus is doing the same. He does that. Verse 32, when you read, they went to a solitary place. The, the word for kind of solitary place there is, is kind of a wilderness. Jesus is taking people in, into a wilderness again. And you realize this looks like the rescuing God. And what's he doing? Verse 31, he's, he's calling exhausted people to come and rest. But there's a bit of a maths problem that arrives quite quickly. There's 5,000 men plus women and children, probably knocks it up to about 10,000 or over, and they're getting hungry. And Jesus says an incredible thing to them. Verse 37, you give them something to eat. Do you know the people who show up at your door? 10,000 people. Do you have to feed them? Yeah, just open up the fridge. Oh, the fridge, you, you, you feed them, you get some extra stuff. And they say, not surprisingly, but notice how he's put in the terms of, of work and wages. They say that would take more than half a year's wages. And you don't need to be good at maths. I was never very good at maths, but you don't need to be good at maths to, to work this out, to know you can't keep spending resources like that. You can't keep spending 200 days pay in one day and keep going. It would... It would exhaust you materially, it would exhaust you physically, it would exhaust you emotionally. And Jesus knows what he's doing. And so look what Mark tells us about Jesus in verse 34. He's not exhausted. He's not exhausted by this crowd. Verse 34, when Jesus landed and saw the crowd, he had compassion on them, all of them. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he teaches them. And by verse 42, he's fed them and we're told they all ate and were satisfied. There was basketfuls left over. Now get this. Get this as you, as you read this story. If Jesus being God shows us what God is like, then here's a God of genuine compassion. Here's a God who's concerned about busy people. Here's a God of genuine compassion and impressive resources, enough to care for and feed an entire crowd with women and children, like we said, probably 10,000 or so. And you might say, well, look, that's all very well. That's all very well, but I'm heading, into, I'm heading to work this next week. How does a feeding miracle back then help me with my business? How does it help me with... Look, if I am someone who's just become greedy for stuff, how does it help me if I am someone who's anxious all the time and I'm busy because of that? How does it help me if there's things in life I just want to be distracted for, from? Please don't tell me to stop my busyness and have to face up to those things. How does a story written so long ago help me with those things? The mess of sin I so easily get into. Look, here's part of the way. The miracle, this miracle of the feeding gives a glimpse of Jesus' resources, but there's more. Look at what, look at what Jesus does as he's ready to feed this crowd. You've got verse 41. Let me, let me read it to you. You can follow along if you want. It, it says this, taking the five loaves 
And the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute. You, you read that and you think, well, it's just part of the course. He's just sharing out the food. But words like that are spoken once more in Mark's gospel. Jesus takes bread, gives thanks, and breaks it and gives it to his disciples. It comes in Mark 14 at the Last Supper, where the bread broken pictures Jesus' body broken on the cross, his infinite goodness, given to pay our debt of sin to set us free. And you realize this feeding miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, like everything else in the Bible, is pointing to the big rescue. The big rescue of the cross. And when you think about the overwhelming things in life, the overwhelming feelings of life and the resources you don't have, and you begin to ask, well, okay, but is there a God who cares and would share his resources with me to face up to those things? God says, look at my son. Look at him. Look at him on a single day. He cares for 10,000 compassionately. And he has plenty left over. Would you want a bit of him? If he was around, would you want a bit of him caring for your life, helping you order it, sharing his resources, resources with you? Because God says his compassion will go all the way to the cross where he will spend all of his resources for you in order to save you. So he can satisfy you. So you can begin to live free from greed. You don't need to be greedy if you're satisfied with him. He can forgive you so you know that through him, whatever anyone else says about you, you're okay. You've got his verdict and you don't need to keep proving yourself. And if he's faced up to the worst of our sin on the cross and come through the other side, then he has the resources to help you face the things you just want to be distracted from. So if you know and trust him, if you know and trust this Savior, when he calls you in your busyness and says, remember the Sabbath, or says to you, come away with me by yourself to a quiet place and get some rest, you know it might be to limit your activity, but it's not to limit your freedom. He's a compassionate Savior and who cares about you. So you don't push back. Trusting Jesus means you begin to surrender even your time and your rest to him. I don't know about each of you this morning, but I wonder for some of us if that's a prayer we need to pray. We don't even know how to do it, but we need to pray, Lord Jesus, please would you help me to know how to trust you with my time and my rest. Life feels busy and overwhelming at times. It feels like I'm a slave. I'm just going around this cycle. Please would you help me to know how to surrender my time and my rest to you so I move from greed, anxiety, distraction, whatever it is, to trusting you. Look, that's the move you need to make. It's not just about getting a, a new work schedule or ordering your calendar better. That's the move you need to make. Lord Jesus, I want to trust you, but what are some practical helps along the way? Well, here's the last thing this morning. Look, pattern your life. 
to show you trust Jesus. Not just you better organized, but start to pattern your life to show you trust Jesus. Rannon Hill. You wouldn't know. It was the road up the back from my house. I think there's a photograph of it. It was the hill up that, that, that road. I used to live just around the corner, bottom of the hill, around the corner. It doesn't look very steep, but uh, it was quite steep. Uh, my pals and I, when we were younger, about eight, we used to get to the top of it, and then we'd, for some reason, decide, let's peg it down. Let's run full pelt down the hill, see how fast we can get. See if we can make it all the way to the bottom without falling over. Have you, have you ever done that? Run down a hill at high speeds? Maybe it was just me. And you peg it down. And you know that feeling of when you're going down a hill, you started running it, and it gets to the point where you think, I'm not running this hill anymore. This hill is running me. I can't actually stop my legs. And it becomes a little bit scary. I'm slightly terrified because I think if I trip at any moment, I will crash. There'll be grazes all over myself, and I'm a bit worried about it. But what you can't see is partway down on on the left or right hand side ran in terrace ran off it and it was flat and if I was too frightened as I was running down the hill going too fast you can imagine my speed when I was younger you would just turn off turn off into ran in terrace and the flat bit there you would just slow down begin to slow down you had to slow down quickly because the witch's house was at the end as we called it but that's that's another story for another day of what we thought about that. It wasn't really a witch's house, but we felt that way about it. But the flatness of Ran and Terrace, it just gave you an opportunity to slow down. We're not going to fall over. And so we wouldn't crash. You and I, we start running life, don't we? But you know the feeling. After a while, life starts running you. And it's a little bit of a scary thought. And you think at any moment, if I trip, I'll be all over the place here. You and I need turn-offs in the week. I don't know how busy you feel, but look, here's some starters. As we begin to think about this as a church family together, look, let, let me just say, refreshing relationships. We're different people. There's, there's not a legalistic one-size-fits-all for work and rest, but you need to think, I'm an introvert or an extrovert. What will really refresh and what will really refresh me? We need to spend some time thinking about that. But we, we do need to stop and enjoy things. We're not just producers. We're meant to stop and enjoy and allow for unplanned time. So you know, think about that in your week. What will help you with your work and your rest? But look, one thing I think is, is really helpful is God has made us like him to be relational. And a good thing in any week, it's interesting, you read the Old Testament story of the rescue and the thing God does with his people is he, he feeds them, he gives them a meal. When Jesus comes and calls people aside to rest, he gives them a meal. A good thing for any of us to do in the week is to make sure we have time to sit down to a meal with others and talk. Phones off, face to face. Can I say, those of you who are busy families, even that is one of the ways you can serve those who don't have a family. Invite them in to sit and talk with you. As church families, that should be a good thing we do, part of our community during the week. But there's one thing, and here's, here's the second thing I want to mention as we finish. Sunday worship. The idea of a Sabbath is not just Old Testament law, it's a creation ordinance. The Bible says you and I are to observe a Sabbath day with gathered worship, and that's every week. 
we stop working to worship and remind ourselves it's not our activity that saves us. The hardest work you do in any week, it will not be the stuff you're paid for, it won't be the the family you've got to sort out, it's not all those things. The hardest work I think you'll do in any week is the work of trying to convince yourself you're all right. The work of trying to convince yourself you're okay, you've made it, you're a success in some way, you're all right with other people. And it's exhausting. As we gather to worship, we learn to rest from that. As we come on a Sunday and we confess our sin and we hear God's assurance, as we listen to his gospel word and get sent back into the week knowing we don't rely on ourselves, but on a compassionate Savior, we get the soul rest we most desperately need. And some of you work Sundays. But generally, this is what we need. Don't make Sundays like every other day of the week or, or just a sports day with an hour for church. Like I'm a parent still with young children. And I've started thinking, look, if Jamie and Jack grow up and go to university one day, what do I want them to be as they head off? I'm slightly frightened by the thought that they'll leave home one day. I'm beginning to wonder if I shouldn't teach them to read very well so that they'll, they'll have to just live at home with me forever, not get an education. It's overrated, isn't it? But if they do, I think I want them to make sure wherever they're living to make Sabbath rest and going to church a priority. And if I want that, I need to help them with it now. And so I'm thinking, well, let's not make Sunday a regular homework day. There's more important things to life. One day they'll have to sit exams. And as a father, I want them to do well. But one day they'll stand before the judge of all the earth. And on that day, I want them to know him as their father and to be welcomed home knowing they're loved and secured, not because of what they've done, but because of what the Lord Jesus has done, and to know they've been able to live life in some way, resting in that. In a moment, we're going to come and share the broken bread and poured out wine that reminds us of where we find that rest. But let's just take a moment of of prayer and quiet uh, to think about those things before Steve comes to lead us.